Welcome to Best True Crime Podcast, a division of Best True Crime Books, Games, and Video, LLC. I'm your lead investigator on this case, Judith A. Yates, award-winning true crime author, a criminologist, and a paranormal explorer. Every episode is an investigation where you and I explore true crime, forensics, historic cases, dark history, and criminal theory. We discuss the cases, share information, no chatter, no commercials, no off-topic. Now, grab your crime scene kit, a notebook, and your favorite hat. This is Best True Crime Podcast. The date is 1997. The place is Los Angeles, California. Your assignment is to assist in the investigation and ultimate arrest of two notorious serial killers. Not only did they work in tandem, but they were females, and they were once known as kindly old grandmas. This is the case of Olga and Helen, the granny grifters, and this is part one of two. You're going to jail, honey. They're going to lock you up. Olga admonishes her friend Helen. The two females sit together in one of the interrogation rooms of the Los Angeles Police Department. It is May 2006. When both females have been arrested hours earlier, they refuse to speak to detectives. The investigators decided to place them together, alone, secretly being recorded and watched. So, we listen in as they argue. Helen advised Olga to stay quiet. They could be taping us she hissed. But Olga is refusing to listen. You did all these goddamn insurances extras. That's what raised the suspicion. You can't do that. Stupidity. And with those words, Olga helped seal their fate. It had taken nine months of investigation. Both women had amassed a total of $674,000 five hundred and seventy one dollars and eighty nine cents in insurance fraud and now in their own words they had admitted guilt the two friends sitting in this LAPD interrogation room were named Olga Rutterschmidt and she was 73 years old her partner who was shushing her Helen Golay was 75 Before we discuss how Olga and Helen ended up in the custody of the Los Angeles Police Department, let's go back to 1931. Helen Golay was born in 1931 in Texas. History tells us Helen's father died in a car accident when Helen was a little girl. She bounced from relative to relative until landing in the foster care system. When she was old enough, she packed her bags and headed for Los Angeles. Helen married twice and gave birth to three children. In California, Helen Golay worked for a developer named Artie Aaron. This is where she must have learned to invest in real estate. When Artie died in 1999, Helen mysteriously acquired properties that were left to her in a somewhat shady will. Artie's family took her to court, but the transactions had been legal, so Helen walked out of that courtroom the victor. It was to be a pattern she would repeat for a very long time. Helen's name was on the deeds of various properties to include parcels of the land in Playa del Rey, and she owned apartments. Golay had three grown children, 
she kept a rocky relationship with only her youngest daughter, Kesia. It must have been interesting family dinners because Helen Golay once sued Kesia and her boyfriend for assault. Kesia herself had a rap sheet of her own, including a petty theft conviction. And then there was that business with a Mr. Fred Downey in November of 2000 with Kesia and Helen Golay, but we're going to save that for later. Helen stayed in Santa Monica, where she continued to invest in real estate, purchasing apartments to rent out. But it was a bad market for landlords, and Helen began losing money, so she schemed up ways to make money. She began to spy on her tenants, and then she blackmailed them for money. She charged fines for minor discrepancies, and she took her boarders to court for any little thing she could think of. If you met Helen Golay, you learned very quickly she was not someone you crossed. Better to maintain distance. A long, long distance. Helen Golay was a sight. She liked to wear thin pencil skirts, black stockings, and high, high heels. She was thin, but she was in very good physical condition. Her large glasses set on a very stern face. And Helen visited a hairdresser regularly to tease her bleached hair into a perfect bouffant. Hairdressers and long-term clients develop this special bond where they tell secrets, and Helen confided in her so much that the hairdresser would eventually be a key character witness against Helen in an upcoming trial. Helen and her hairdresser were discussing Hurricane Katrina, that Category 5 hurricane that caused over 1,800 fatalities in August 2005. The hairdresser was discussing how devastating it was, and her heart just went out for the victims. But Helen Golday sniffed, those people were nothing. They were on welfare. They were just useless to society. That was not the only conversation that almost made the hairdresser fall back on her curling iron. Helen Golday once calmly gave instructions on exactly how a person could marry an old, rich man and then kill him using Viagra. She also said something that stuck with the hairstylist for a long time. You don't know how evil I am, Helen Golay told her. Helen drove a Mercedes SUV, and she would drive it to a deli called Izzy's that was located in Santa Monica. It was Izzy's where she would sit in a booth to do her paperwork for her business. The deli was near Helen's very expensive Ocean Park Boulevard home. If you think about it, you can picture her, this tough, perfectly dressed and coiffed woman, sitting at a booth surrounded by papers and files. Her face is stern and her perfectly manicured hands are rifling through files and taking notes. Helen kept impeccable files. That would later be helpful for certain investigators, but we'll get to that. We're going to leave Helen Golay in the Santa Monica Deli, scheming and setting up illegal activity, to go back in time to Hungary in 1933. Olga Rutterschmidt was born in Hungary in 1933. Her family home was in Budapest, and at an early age, Olga learned to enjoy playing the piano 
and she would become a very talented piano player. She also learned at an early age how to survive using her wits and deceit, a war-torn country, and a class system were her mentors. Olga often told a story that no one could know if it was true or not. That was just Olga. It was wartime in winter 1944, she would say. A bomb hit her family's apartment building, reducing it to rubble. Olga, then maybe 11 or 12, managed to survive, but her hand was permanently disfigured. Thus, she just couldn't play the piano again. Eventually, she would marry, and the couple immigrated to the United States in 1957. They purchased a small business. Olga became a widow in the 1970s. Olga was able to move to Section 8 housing in a Hollywood apartment, not because she was poor, but because she wanted to live cheap. She claimed a mental disability that enabled her to qualify for the Section 8 grants. One of those disabilities was PTSD from the war. Olga reported receiving electroconvulsive treatments and suffered brain trauma, she would say. And she'd tell anybody who would listen. She qualified for low rent and she was paying about $200 a month for a one-bedroom apartment. Olga was somewhat small in stature, a little wide in the hips, but she moved quickly, very agile for her age. She did a lot of hiking and she went to a gym. Olga wore her short, dirty blonde hair swept away from her face. Her eyes were somewhat sunken, her nose sharp. She dressed nicely, but far from the latest fashions. Her interests lie in chess games and classical music. And anyone standing within hearing distance got to hear all about her past, especially her mental issues. She wasn't shy telling those stories. Every apartment building has that tenant, and Olga fit the bill. She was known to complain loudly about anything and everything. She was known for a quick temper and was easily roused. She filed personal injury claims every few years and collected the money. It was just cheaper to pay her off than having to go to court. And her past resurfaced in her legal battles. The phrase severe shock appears constantly in the personal injury lawsuits that she filed. But she wasn't just that annoying neighbor. Olga Ruderschmidt made a living by filing petty lawsuits. Just ask the handyman of her apartment building. He would recall a conversation between himself and Olga. What do you do for a living? The handyman asked her in casual conversation. I sue people, Olga told him. A La Brea coffee shop could concur. Olga Rutterschmidt purchased a muffin here, but suffered what she called great emotional damage and severe shock because the muffin was inedible. She became so out of control that a customer had to escort Olga out of the shop that day. Both the coffee shop and the customer received notice that they were going to be sued for that emotional damage and severe shock. But the lawsuit was dropped when the handyman testified relating that strange conversation with Miss Rutterschmidt. In between those ridiculous lawsuits, Olga Rutterschmidt was running credit card schemes. 
A fellow tenant would later claim that she once fanned out credit cards like a Las Vegas dealer at a blackjack table. And she explained how she was defrauding the government and the credit card companies. When Helen met Olga at a West Hollywood wellness spa, hell broke loose for future defenseless victims. See, the two women were born to be comrades. They became experts at faking slip-and-fall accidents at local businesses all throughout the area. They would hang out at fancy hotels and flirt with wealthy men. What they would do is they would go into these fancy-schmancy hotels they would never be able to afford. They'd bring their swimsuits and change in the women's bathroom, and then they'd go hang out at these fit swimming pools and at the bars and they would trick the men into buying expensive dinners, jewelry, drinks, whatever they could get off of them. Or sometimes they would just straight up rob these poor guys. But what they were making was chump change compared to what they could have been cashing in. And somewhere the scheming began. Helen and Olga began doing volunteer work at Hollywood's first Presbyterian church, assisting poor, downtrodden, homeless people. They soon became known as the sweet, gregarious grandma types, always having kind words, always helping hands. These kind old women even volunteered free apartments for men who needed extra care. Helen owned a triplex in Santa Monica, and she would never turn down an old fellow who needed a place to stay. In 1997, Olga and Helen took in 71-year-old homeless man Paul Vados. Paul's life had been rough, and it showed in his craggy face. He had an unshaven face and thick black hair brushed black from a high forehead. Paul's heavily lidded eyes seemed to reflect the rough times he was going through. Paul was a tiny guy. He was missing most of his teeth, the results of a very mean street and that monster alcoholism that had taken over his life. See, he had fallen into the depths of alcohol after the death of his beloved wife, and he just couldn't get away from those monstrous claws. Olga was the caregiver with her soft, sweet Hungarian accent, and she had this natural charm. Helen rented out the apartment for these homeless men. Nope, she wasn't going to take a dime. She just wanted them to get back on their feet. Remember, Helen kept meticulous record books, including eight different life insurance policies on Paul, listing Helen and Olga as the beneficiaries. And now we travel back to a dark alley in Los Angeles, California. It's November 8th, 1999. Los Angeles Police Department responds to a 911 call about a hit-and-run. The victim is an elderly white man lying in the alley. His limbs are askew, and it's obvious he's deceased. The poor guy, he had obviously been lying down when he was run over. He was covered with tire tracks and drag marks, and his body was crushed and sopping wet. It had rained heavily the night he died. Fingerprints identify the man as Paul Vados, a 73-year-old Hungarian immigrant. Officers check records and discover Paul had been reported as missing by his fiancée. His fiancée's name? Helen Golay. 
He had also been reported missing by his cousin, and his cousin's name was Olga Rutterschmidt. The remains are taken to the morgue, where toxicology tests reveal no evidence of drugs or alcohol in Paul's system. It doesn't take long for Helen Golay to arrive at the morgue to recover Paul's remains. Not long after, Olga arrives at the police station requesting Paul's death certificate. There's a detective there, Detective Lee Willman, and he is in charge of Paul's case. Now, Detective Willman notes Olga's cold demeanor. Strange. And that's true. People do grieve differently, but still. Detective Lee Willman is suspicious about Paul Vado's death. A hit and run in a dark alley. No alcohol or drugs in the victim's system. No witnesses or surveillance video. Well, Wilman's really got nothing to go on except his cop's gut instinct. Paul Vados' case goes into the unsolved mystery file, and there it's going to sit. Meanwhile, Helen Golay and Olga Rutterschmidt are busy women. They are also the beneficiaries on Paul Vados' insurance, and the policies are taking over a year to pay out. The insurance company receive a letter. The women are threatening to sue the insurance company. They end up settling for $600,000. $600,000 is a pretty good chunk of change. Coupled with income from credit card fraud, their insurance scams, and ripping off the helpless old rich white men in these fancy hotels, it could set up two elderly ladies for a long time. But this is Helen Golay and Olga Rutterschmidt. They're not even suspects in Paul's demise. But they've just got started. Podcast 14 will be part two of two of Olga and Helen, the Granny Gifters. I hope you'll join us then. Hey listeners, my name is Judith Yates true crime author and criminologist, and I have taught common sense self-defense for over 25 years. I have finally put all of these classes together in a book that's called How to Recognize the Devil, because I believe devils walk among us every day. And we can recognize these devils and escape crime if we know how. We can teach it to our children, to our elderly, and special interest groups. The book is available at www.besttruecrime.com or you can pick it up at amazon.com or wherever good true crime books are sold. Now, I don't make any money off of this book because I believe it's more important for you to learn how to use these skills. All the proceeds from this book goes to a nonprofit organization. Pick up a copy of How to Recognize the Devil. It does include worksheets for you to better use the skills taught in this book. And please be safe out there. Thank you for joining me on this investigation, exploring true crime, forensics, historic cases, dark history, and criminal theory. This is Best True Crime Podcast. No chatter, no commercials, no off topic. I do hope you will subscribe. This podcast runs off donations only. You can drop us a donation 
$35 or more, and I'll send you a signed book. Just go to www.besttruecrime.com. My name is Judith A. Yates, award-winning true crime author, a criminologist, and a paranormal explorer. Thank you for joining me on Best True Crime Podcast, a division of Best True Crime Books, Games, and Video, LLC. Be safe out there.